0: Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB Classics. I'm Cassia
1: and I'm Dylan. Our book this week is An African in Greenland by Tete Michel Kopomasi, originally published in 1983. It was translated from the French by James Kirkup.
0: Tete Michel Kopomasi was a teenager in Togo when he discovered a book about Greenland and knew that he must go there. Working his way north over nearly a decade, Kopomasi finally arrived in the country of his dreams. This record of his adventures among the Inuit is a testament to the strangeness of the human species and to the surprising sympathies that bind us all. My apologies to NYRB, I do like to remove some of the adjectives from their descriptions.
1: (laughs) Are you going to keep that part in? Yes.
0: And we are joined by writer Chris Lee. Welcome, Chris. We're so happy to finally be speaking with you. Thank you for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me on the show. It's uh, very exciting to be here.
0: So you have a book coming out soon called Eastwards and Far, which details your time biking from one side of Canada to the other. We were just wondering what what draws you to travel literature as a reader and to this book in particular?
2: Sure. So how I found this book in particular. Whenever I'm in another country, I try and read a book from there. Oh nice. And in 2019, just before Covid hit, me and my partner were in Thailand. And I was searching for a book by a Thai author and having quite a lot of problems um, finding one. And then I actually came across a blog called A Year of Reading the World. I don't know if you guys have heard of that before, but it's by a, no, I a lady called Anne Morgan. And she set herself the goal in 2012 of reading a book from every country within the confines of the year. Wow. Which is, yeah, a really ambitious project. And she managed it. She goes into this sort of rigorous detail about how many pages she has to read per day and all this stuff. But wow. She also has a list of all the books, which I, I think I took... I definitely took Thailand from the list. And then I was just browsing through to see what else stood out as interesting. And, yeah, yeah. and African and Greenland was one of the titles that stood out. So even though I've not been to Greenland myself, but it was... Peak was interest. it a Greenland book or was it a Togo book? I think it was Togo, actually. Yeah, yeah that, good makes good that would make sense. Yeah. And then to travel literature in general, I think I've, the reasons I read it has changed over the years. I used to read it when I was a teenager as sort of a fuel for wanderlust, imagining sort of trips. Mm. I'd take when i'm when i was older things like that um and apart from this book i don't really read i read much less in the genre than i used to because huh. that sort of that urge is sort of quieted as i've grown up i think
0: yeah I, my experience has been similar mm-hmm. you have that like hunger for the world and then you're kind of oh, okay i've done it
2: yeah that's it and he hits the same point at the end of this book, right? He's debating whether to live in Greenland for the rest of his life or or go home. And it's a familiar sort of sensation. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: I do. That's one aspect of this book that I do really love is that he goes beyond, I think, where a lot of travel books take you in like the evolution of where that that spark of an idea of like, I want to travel actually winds up down the road. Yeah. So usually we discuss the author's background, but it seems like a lot of what is known about... Kapamasi, in English at least, is covered in the book. Mm-hmm. So we thought it would probably come up in the discussion. So we'll just yeah. kind of skip that.
1: But we will still, of course, cover the cover art of the NYRB edition. Here it is, yeah. Iceberg Number no. 5 by Lynn Davis. She is a prolific artist that has been working since the 1980s. She's widely known for depicting nature and this specific iceberg was taken in Disco Bay, Greenland, Davis has taken photographs all over the world, including Africa and up to the Arctic Circle. Did you find anything interesting in this picture, Chris?
2: Yeah, at first, I actually found it kind of, I was searching for the word that I think describes it without seeming critical. And I think it undersells the book in a way, mm-hmm. because it's it's quite a, it's a really pretty image, but it's also quite quite plain. And when you read it, it feels like they could have picked various different things to focus on. But then as I read it and thought back to the image, I really appreciated how it sort of the title and the image together set a very definitive expectation of what you're going to find in the book that is then flipped mm-hmm. on almost on its head by the first sort of chapter or two. So I like, I really like that. I don't know if that was like a deliberate choice or mm-hmm. something I interpreted, but yeah, I like that.
0: Yeah. I think the, the image that I had in my head of Greenland prior to reading this book was more like what's on the cover. Think of the landscape. And then after reading the book, I don't think of the, the landscape, but really. I think of the people that he mm-hmm. depicted.
2: Yeah, definitely. And then also, you're expecting to go straight into sort of icy, cold terrain, mm-hmm. but you're thrown you're thrown completely into the opposite in the in the introduction, which is right. Yeah, it's I great. like that sort of bait and switch.
1: And they have a really nice mm-hmm. picture of Kopomasi himself with the the jacket on on the back of the the book. And I think when I started, it, I was like, "Why didn't you pick that?" It's a more That's defining. That's a great
0: picture of him with the fur around. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and he's like smiling. I think the, the cover picture was interesting because you can imagine that would be a picture that Kopamasi himself would have seen in the book about Greenland that might have
0: yes. attracted
1: yeah. to him where, you know, as we see in the beginning, it's completely different with the jungle and with the snakes and stuff. And this could have been a, an idea of a respite from that. And so we get sort of drawn into the book from the cover the same way Copa is drawn into
2: Greenland in his own travel there. Yeah, for sure. I think the... Like you say, the picture on the back would have been good. There's also one of him standing in the crowd when he first arrives. And he's like a foot taller yes. than everyone I around him. I love
0: that picture, yeah. yes. <laughs> that would have been
2: really good. Yeah. Have you seen that they've they've reissued this book in the UK last year as a Penguin modern classic?
0: Oh, I've seen that cover, yes. It's oh, like yes. It's more of a painting looking thing.
2: Yeah, that's it. The sort of red moon and the mountains and stuff. So mm-hmm. That's like a really interesting take on it as well. And I've actually changed the title to um, Michelle the Giant, which I thought was an interesting switch oh
0: yeah that is a big change
2: yeah and again I think it counteracts that sort of bait and switch that this edition has because it doesn't set as strong an expectation within the title
0: sure sure so we have referenced this but the the book begins with this really gripping one-two punch of chapters describing the author's run-in as a child with a deadly snake how did this opening establish like the need if you will for the journey that he takes ahead
2: yeah, I think that the, I think jumping ahead to the second chapter where he's recovering from the snake mm-hmm. bite or the the injury caused by the, the snake and the circumstances around that where he's been sort of, it's been heavily implied that he'll have to join this snake tribe as a healer yeah. uh, in a way to sort of pay penance to the, the healing he got and um, respect the spirits and things. I think that's such a good motive for wanting to, to sort of go somewhere else, go away mm-hmm. from that. And the. The serendipity of him finding that book in the what is it the uh, missionary bookshop full of yeah seemingly all religious books apart from this one sort of encyclopedia of Greenland I think that I think in a lot of travel literature there's some moment of serendipity where something happens that puts people on a different path they might not have been on mm-hmm. and I think the first two chapters here it's such a an unusual example of that because they're both the snake accident is such an unusual sort of freak accident even within the sort of different cultural background that he's writing from sure yeah it's just a really good one um, I actually had to double take when I was reading the first chapter because it felt so sort of alien to expectations. That I wondered if it was like a fictional uh, book that I'd mis- misinterpreted. And when I was telling my friend about the first chapter as well, he asked the same question. So it's so it's sort of so outlandish that it's it draws you straight in. I think.
0: I know. I mean, I was reading it just like. <gasps>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you were audibly I, gasping.
0: Yeah, like I felt like I was in the tree with him, with the snake like crawling up around me.
2: Yeah. And the
1: terror. And I love the humor of them not knowing whether it was the snake that actually bit him or if it was like the antidote that they mm. were they had administered that was actually what was poisoning him.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You really feel for him, this little young kid who's just had a really severe fall Yeah. In that in that context. And I don't think I've felt so much sort of visceral terror from a book in a long time as when the snake hits the ground he thinks he's escaped that moment and then it starts coming back up towards him like the inevitability of that is Is yeah,
0: yeah
2: yeah it definitely draws you in
0: you describing the uh the jesuit bookshop where he was it made me think of it differently now it's like he almost it's not a religious book that he reads but he almost pursues the goal of getting to greenland with like a religious fervor yeah and Mm it it takes this like pilgrim's path that is very spiritually led by like his faith in people and all these things so i yeah i putting that together that makes a lot of sense
2: definitely Mm -hmm. and he's yeah the devotion he has to his goal that perseveres for eight years and all sorts of different things. So many interesting things happen around him that could easily attract his interests elsewhere and put him on a different path, but he sticks with it.
1: And sort of speaking about that path after he becomes so fixated on the idea of traveling to the Arctic landscape, so contrasted to that of his own origin, or it seemed to, at least in the notable absence of snakes. But even after deciding to leave home, he goes through a series of almost humorous and like bureaucratic moves to get there. What do you think
2: of the book's inclusion of the journey to the journey, almost? I really like it. And I think, it's, I think it's a bit taboo sometimes in travel writing to spend too much time focusing on the sort of interim between setting the scene and the motive and actually arriving in the place. Yes. Especially, there's a point, I think, where he details a year he spent in Germany or something. And it's just a paragraph about this year he spent. And I think across one or two chapters, there's sort of eight years of working through all different countries and jobs and learning like four or five languages it's crazy and, yeah yeah and the amount of stuff he I feel like there's enough material at least for another book in the first quarter that would be just yeah. as compelling as the full book and I think that speaks to how unusual and attractive the sort of the core journey he's doing is that it doesn't you don't feel sort of shortchanged by what you're reading and it doesn't feel jarring that you go through it so quickly mm. so yeah I'm, I'm pleased that he included it because it gives a lot of insight into his his character and his like you say his ability to connect with the people around him and sort of pursue pursue his journey
0: yeah, it was such an interesting window into the politics of that time and like the border crossing yep. dramas that he goes through being from this African nation in like a newly post-colonial environment where these African countries that maybe it was it used to be easier to get from within the continent, one country to the other, but now after independence, people are kind of like territorial and a little bit suspicious of the other ones and they have to really advocate for their borders and he's just it seems like fearlessly going through all of this this stuff that a lot of people even other intrepid travelers (laughs) would be deterred by
1: and he even has to like double back at a couple points in Mm -hmm. a way and you'd think that's a lot of people would just be like well that didn't work out and he was just like no, it'll it'll happen.
2: Yeah.
0: He has yeah. like blind faith, it seems like. And I don't know if that's just looking back because he wrote this after he had already been to Greenland. But like, I found that incredible.
2: Yeah. One question I had there is he seems to have all these encounters with people that seem so chance and fluke and serendipitous, like the guy who puts him up just on a letter of recommendation and sort of gives him a stipend for the rest of his life. And you wonder whether he would. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could meet that guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just mind blowing, isn't it? Like it's such a different, a different world, but you wonder whether he'd, whether it's serendipity that he has these encounters and that his journey would have failed if he didn't or whether the way he's sort of navigating the world would have attracted similar inc- encounters with different people. I was thinking uh-huh. about that quite a lot throughout it as well. Because yes. he just seems to bump into gener- generosity and hospitality wherever he is.
0: Yes. While reading it, I, I was thinking about the Tennessee Williams quote, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. And as you've said, I mean, he's always finding people that house him and feed him and guide him and offer exactly the thing that he's looking for. Yeah. And it, it, it did make me wonder whether by, by putting himself in a position where he trusted that someone might do that, whether that in itself invited the kind of generosity of people And that goes back to like this interesting, like covert spirituality or like philosophy of the book. So I was, I was wondering that too. It's like, did you see his narrative as an affirmation of the idea that the world is a good, like safe place?
2: Yeah, I think I did. I think that that's a really core thing through a lot of travel literature as well. That question of whether people are good and whether you expose yourself to the sort of yeah. whether you expose yourself to the world what you'll find in return um, mm-hmm. and I, th- I feel like he would have had those different encounters equivalent encounters with different people if he hadn't met the the sort of couple in in the train station or the man in in France because I think that there's a sort of intangible way you can present yourself to the world that attracts those things in but the thing that got me most is that he does it in situations where if people weren't willing to take him in there were times where he'd probably have sort of died frozen to death or mm. died of exposure because mm. he's in these sort of remote villages where it gets yeah. to minus 40. And some of the places he is in the beginning seem to have hotels and boarding houses and stuff. But mm. later on, when he's, he gets off a boat into a village that has like 12 houses, if he got there and wasn't able to be put up, like he's it's a lot of courage to put yourself yes. in that kind of situation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I do, I do think that what I took from the book is that humanity is, does have that sort of core of good running through it because even though he encounters he encounters a few negative things they always seem to be offset by the sort of overwhelming positivity and he's able to sort of contextualize them in a way that doesn't leave him jaded or disillusioned as well
0: yeah and it seems like when people are suspicious of him he has a way of winning them over over time
2: yeah just like some complete innocence that he has almost Mm -hmm. yeah he says at one point about how he knocked on a door and the, the little girl behind it screamed in terror and then it details him like going into the house, being introduced to everyone, and there's, he just there's this is a throwaway comment. He's like, twenty four hours later, everyone was fine, no one was scared anymore. <laughs> and, like rather than greet that being screamed in the face with like it doesn't put his hackles up or anything, he's just quite happy to put himself in that situation and show them that he sort of means well, and then that's reciprocated and it achieves this sort of peaceful, kind equilibrium, which is nice, and that seems to happen to him repeatedly. Yeah,
1: going off that, I wanted to talk a little bit about that writing style that you you mentioned. He seems to paint vivid portraits of both Africa and Greenland, but there is that sort of matter-of-factness and starkness in his writing that felt parallel to the landscape he was traversing, where when he describes an encounter, it's just very, oh, it happened and mm. things kind of worked out. What
2: role does language play in telling the story for you? Yeah, I think, that, I think he's got a very evocative writing style that mm-hmm. pulls, pulls you in. And he's really good at isolating very small details or observations that build quite a vivid picture of the place you are. And I've got a couple of those written down. So one is where he's back in the village in Togo at the beginning, and he's describing someone crossing the yard whose fine white slippers slap against his bare heels as he walked. Mm. And then he talks about how the guy in France had this room sort of full of books, and he would often spend a whole morning looking for one particular book, perched on a chair. He would keep opening and closing these folders, repeating, and yet I'm sure I put it And that's it. And he just gives these sort of one or two sentence descriptions of the people in the book that are very quick to characterize them in a way that's quite deeper than you might expect from so few words, I think. And I think he does that with the landscapes and the places as well. I think when he's observing all of the things he sort of encounters, he takes on a more sort of long form approach sometimes and goes quite deep into the details. And that I feel like when he does that, even though Even though the tone has shifted slightly, it doesn't lose your interest, Mm -hmm. which is another sort of way of evoking that.
0: There was one that I, that kind of goes along with what you were saying. It's about the cold. He just describes the cold. The Greenland cold, strangely enough, didn't make you shiver or cause your teeth to chatter, for it wasn't just all around you. It was inside you. It permeated everything, houses, clothing, people, things. You were reluctant to touch a plate, a pan, a cigarette lighter in your pocket, a watch left at your bedside overnight and so on and you know yeah like he he takes these very like primal feelings of like being cold (laughs) (laughs) that that might be really hard to actually explain but it's so physical it's so like present in your experience and he finds a way to to describe it
2: yeah it's very yeah vivid evocative like you feel like you're you're there with him but from a safe safe distance exactly. one of my favorite bits is the when he's talking about how cold it is when he at one of the many times he's presumably stops to sort of take his journal out and take some notes from what's happening when he's on the sledge ride between two of the villages and he takes his journal out and finds that he can't write the notes he wants to take because all of the ink in his pens has frozen solid yes, yes like those little those little bits of that sort of an insight into how he collected the material and approached mm. the, the situations around him to to build the book And I like that, seeing how the cold impacted that. I just never even would have physically considered that. That That ink
0: might freeze and you couldn't write write something down.
2: Yeah, and when he's trying to take a photo and he has to take his gloves off and it's like he describes the agony of taking three photos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But he never seems to be deterred in terms of sort of satisfying his curiosity for every aspect of everything around him, which is admirable, I think.
0: Indeed. So much travel literature explores the difference between home and away and prominent works in the genre and many in the nyrb classics series we must say focus on a westerner going east or simply further west in centering the experience of an african man this book offers a refreshing twist on the usual setup so i think his race is another factor that makes his courage and his determination even more impressive in light of the The reception that he may have faced in some of these places, who are totally unaccustomed to seeing somebody like him among them. What effect did this reversal have on you as a reader, and to the to the telling of the story?
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because it flips that. Usually, when you read a travel book, you've got familiarity with the sort of origin culture or the culture they arrive in, or maybe both. So you've got sort of some familiarity in terms of reference point, and you can. You've got your own way of interpreting it additionally to what the author gives you Mm -hmm. and i think here there's just two cultures that i at least was completely unfamiliar with both so that any any semblance of a shared reference point is is lost which makes it more sort of exotic for want of a better word and like alluring to find out how he's going to perceive the world based on his own very different reference points and the fact that he takes time to tell us about his culture as well sort of sets a firm bedrock for that so he doesn't just assume that we're going to he doesn't assume that we'll know anything about what we encounter and he's very good at telling us it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it brought a lot to brought a lot to the experience that lack of familiarity.
1: I like that he's there's even like the middle point between the, the departure and the destination where we maybe encounter cultures that we're more accustomed to Yeah, as, you know, an American slash Westerner. And he seems to describe it in the same sort of style that he does the more exotic
2: ones. Yeah, cuz to him it's got that same distance from his home yeah, exactly. Right? and it's yeah, it's re- it's strange to read about France as equally exotic to as Greenland. That's yeah, it's an interesting aspect of it. And it's the part of your question about how his differences to the culture he's going to. That's this sort of physical aspect as well so you get the border official who's concerned that he physically won't be able to handle the temperatures when he gets there right and that is to take him to such a point that he almost refuses him entry to Greenland right at the end of mm-hmm. this sort of eight year journey he's taken to get there mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting you don't I don't know where I've, if I've come across that before in travel literature where someone is nearly turned away at a border because the person doesn't know whether they're like physiologically able to handle going in it doesn't seem to be a Malicious, racist decision that guy makes. It seems to be genuine concern that he might die as soon as he gets off the boat.
0: And it's just a testament to the extremity of his ambition to yeah. like go to this really harsh climate.
2: Yeah, and his lack of preparedness in a way, because he's on the boat, right? And he starts to realize that he's I didn't, I don't have it to hand, but he gives a list of the clothes he's got. And then he starts to realize as the boat edges closer to Greenland, that it might not be enough. <laughs> yeah. But again, he's just able to, as soon as he arrives, he's just able to sort of find what he needs and get these sort of lovely handmade clothes made for him by someone in the community.
0: Yes, um, I, I love his description of the, the pants that, that someone prepares for him. It, were they made for someone else and they didn't fit them and they managed to potentially fit him? And he kind of strides around. They're like, oh, you're so lucky. And he's like, I, you know, personally, I would have made them differently, but I guess they're fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. It goes to that matter of factness of his language. Just
0: eh. Yeah. And there's humor in this, in this book, but then there's also these just like really scary moments like you mentioned before, when he gets there and the children see him, they mm-hmm. think that he's a, a monster. And to hear it in his voice in this BBC interview that came out not too long ago, talking about how he's like, yeah, the children thought I was going to eat them. You know, that would be a pretty intense experience, but he, he, the book doesn't register an emotional reaction to those moments. No. He seems very patient Mm -hmm. and he just kind of lets it pass him by and he, he has no resentment toward, toward people. And that was just an interesting element of this book. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. And also the fact that they broadcast it on Greenland Radio to the whole country when he arrives as well. So he can't, like, (laughs) that negative, (laughs) that potentially negative response is waiting for him everywhere he goes. And there's people who he meets a year later who are like, I've been waiting to meet you for a whole year.
0: They're like, you're that guy.
2: Yeah. So it's really, Uh it's really great that it is a positive response. But that, yeah, he's he's a brave man. But, yeah, I do think that he has, I think the thing that struck me most is that he encounters some of these, like, really scary, intense, terrifying situations and is able to just take that objective, sort of unfazed approach to it. So there's times where he gets stuck in the cold on the sled ride, which threatens his survival. But then there's also the time where he's living with a family who are living in sort of fairly squalid conditions, don't have any food. He's exposed to violence, both physical and sort of potentially sexual violence and encounters Mm -hmm. described later Mm -hmm. on in the book. And with all of this stuff, he just sort of takes it, lets it wash over him, tries to contextualize it within the culture seems to acknowledge that most of the time alcohol is involved in the negative stuff. So it doesn't sort of tarnish his perception of humanity. But then the one thing that he does get scared by is when he sees the Aurora Borealis and he's like completely (laughs) unnerved by it. And he's, that really struck me that he can handle all this like intense humanity coming at him from all different Mm. angles, but the natural phenomena that is renowned in the West and presumably in some places beyond for being like one of the most beautiful things you can see in nature is what, is what scares him. Yeah. And I think that goes along with, at several points during Kobomasi's stay,
1: he's like, he is disappointed by the real Greenland versus the one he had imagined from the book. This is a theme that like recurs throughout the genre, that the traveler has come too late to see what he wanted, or that by his very presence has sullied the thing he has
2: hoped to discover. What are your thoughts on the handling of this paradox of travel? Yeah, this is this is a great question because it's such a lovely image him finding that book and it's sort of planting that seed that he then pursues for that amount of time. Mm. But when you've got a, I think if you've got, if you're someone who wants to write about traveling and you've got something in your head, an idea about the place you're going to go to, quite often it's going to be more than one book will have contributed to that idea. He's got this sort of vision with only one component to it, mm. which means realistically a much bigger gap between whatever his imagination is and reality. Mm-hmm. And it takes him a long time to get to anything closely approaching what he thought he'd see. So there's one, I'm just going to see if I can find the reading where he says, he's talking about authenticity. And he says, This community was the most authentically Greenlandic of all those I had seen so far. There were plenty of kayaks, strong huskies, and sledges bigger than those at Sisimut. On an impressive number of drying racks hung fish, seal blubber, and fox skins. The word authenticity there is interesting because it sounds objective, I think, but it's inherently subjective because that's just authentic according to his interpretation right
0: authentic when authenticity changes as technology changes
2: yeah that's it and he often laments that in schools the kids aren't taught stuff about their culture and traditions being lost and all this stuff so he's got a very he's got his idea of what Greenland is like and he attaches authenticity to that and even though he sees lots of things that threaten that perception quite a lot he I think he does quite a good job at balancing that with refining his interpretation of what Greenland is. And even though he's not found yet what he envisioned it as, he gives the impression that he's sort of revising his idea of the whole as he goes. Yeah. Which is probably the best way to deal with that potential disillusionment.
1: Yeah, I like that when we first sort of arrive in Greenland, it isn't much different from what we found in Europe proper, because at first it's it's the more colonized, the more Denmark part of it. And he's surprised by instead of like, these groups of hunters that go out fishing in the morning, it's like, factory fishing at this point big like metal boats that go out and catch fish by the the scores and hundreds and i like that even when he sees that he's like no i still got to find my Greenland. limb. i just got to keep going north <laughs>
2: yeah and he does the amount of perseverance to get all these sort of boat rides and wait for sort of six or seven months at a time while the sun is never above the horizon and all the boats can't get through because of permafrost but he just still holds on to it
0: He finds his thirst for adventure, his desire for the the ideal Greenland, the imagined Greenland, satisfied in more in the northern regions of the country. But he also finds some cultural differences, maybe unexpectedly challenging. Some of these come from the food. There's a lot of raw meat consumption, a lot of blubber eating, (laughs) um, and then interesting sexual mores that... Seem to throw him for a loop at first. And, and then even the humor, the Greenland society bonds a lot over ridicule <laughs> <laughs> of, yeah. of people who have fallen down or slipped on the ice. But but he, he comes to reconcile himself to these differences by really thoughtfully relating them back to his own culture. You know, he seems to learn to have a greater tolerance and a understanding of himself. And so that just sort of made me think kind of piggybacking off that other question about whether whether he affirms like a positive view of people do you think that the process of travel has made him a better person and is it possible that travel makes us better people because I think it's it's a common assumption that it does at least among like a certain upper class group that is able to travel but I'm I'm not sure that it necessarily does and so I think it's a important question
2: yeah definitely i think this is my favorite question in in the list you sent over because there is there is that perception of traveling being this sort of surefire way to find yourself and discover yourself and pave the way for like an enlightened future based around what you've experienced but it's definitely not always the case i think it more amplifies what's there already so with Mm -hmm. Massey, he's got curiosity he's got like a drive he's got a desire to connect with people and traveling just amplifies all these things and lets them Sort of flourish which is I think an answer that yes travel has improved him but then also there's the question of whether those things would have flourished if he'd not fallen out the tree and found the book and stayed at home yeah and I think that I think that he would have had those I think I feel like he would have had that progression internally just within different contexts so travel is one arena that you can have that in but it's not the only one and it doesn't guarantee it
0: mm-hmm.
1: I sometimes find that going more into the minutia of where you are can be just as helpful as as traveling around mm-hmm. this is not exactly well problem is i'm not much i've i haven't traveled too much in my life so i cannot give that much of a perspective <laughs> on it but something similar to me is I'm, I'm a bird watcher and i remember like i'd go around the state of new mexico when i lived there a lot and one year i did like a county year list where I, I just birded like basically the only, like just just the city I was in, parks. And I found I learned more about the birds and the bird watchers around me and sort of the different places around my city that made me a little bit more enlightened than I did when I was trying to go mm-hmm. hundreds of miles around, trying to find yeah. birds that way instead. So that was kind of my yeah. perception and experience with that sort of question
2: yeah and traveling is a really sort of accessible and familiar way for people to put themselves in the situations that might be the first where they've really paid that level of attention to the place they're in mm-hmm. i think i feel like if you're a teenager and you've paid like thousands of pounds for a round the world plane ticket and you get to a new place mm-hmm. the novelty of it and all of it hitting you you're going to connect with it in a way that you might not have connected to like your hometown or whatever so it might be people's first opportunity to see the world in that way and for some people it sticks and it's a thing that they keep and cultivate and for other people They don't engage with it that way and then other people who don't travel and stay at home get it through other avenues like bird watching or reading or whatever but yeah yeah i think that it's it's definitely not inevitably a way to change or improve yourself as a person but it is a vehicle that can can achieve that i'm sure it can
1: i remember Mm -hmm. the one time i actually did travel i went to iceland which is somewhat similar to greenland (laughs) in a way and strangely when i got there i realized that like it was much closer to america than i expected because Iceland had basically had to transform itself into a, a tourist capital, mm-hmm. where everything was in English and everyone was waiting to expect Americans into their yep. homes and yeah. shops because that's what would grew the economy there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I, I well, I did love that trip, and I, I do think I learned a lot because I think travel is some somewhat eye-opening. I, I also didn't have that sort of out of body, out of experience ex- expectation fulfilled that I kind of went into it with
2: yeah and it's harder I think it's harder now when when Copa Massey was in Greenland to find somewhere there where there isn't a fairly widespread perception of what that place might be like or yeah. an account of someone who's been there or, or a
0: tourist industry
2: uh-uh. yeah that's it it's hard like the mm-hmm. world is more similar broadly and this is a common theme like there's a travel book called Jupiter's Travels by a guy called Ted Simon who in the 70s set off from London to motorbike around the world and when he was in his 70s so i think in the early noughties he did the exact same trip again and held it in sort of direct contrast between then and now and how the places felt and what people thought of him and whether he could get like a mcdonald's wherever he was and he his conclusion was basically the world is generic and the same now but i don't think that i think the novelty of a place is just one aspect of what you can experience when you go somewhere new
1: yeah in some of the final chapters on greenland Kopomasi does explore the country's view of death and how it relates to like their hunting practice and community values. In a recent interview with the BBC, Kobamasio, who spent much of his life in France, said that he wants to die in Greenland. What is it about a- dying in a place that makes people feel they belong there perhaps
2: even more than being born there? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm surprised by that because in some of the death in some of the areas where he's talking about death, it doesn't sound like a desirable way to be treated after you've died, I guess, not being insensitive to those traditions. But like they said, they sort of leave the corpse out for months until the weather is right to, to bury them. But then he, always, I guess he talks a lot about the soul and the mm-hmm. um, destiny of the soul and the different mm-hmm. aspects of the soul. And he found that there, the Greenlandic perception of that aligned quite nicely with his like, Togolese roots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess if he finds, if he feels that common commonality. Then that's a good reason to be somewhere, and it just speaks to the connection, I guess, that he's got and kept with the place. Yeah, the interview sounds interesting. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to have a listen to that with the uh, BBC one.
0: Yeah, I think I might steal a couple of quotes from it and just drop it in. Just to hear him talk about this in his own voice is very affecting. Yeah, but that part of the book, nearer to the end, it seems like he, he's on this journey to get like deeper and deeper into the heart of Greenland until he meets this sort of elder man. And that guy is kind of like his victory. That was like yeah. the inner sanctum that he achieved. It's the book is like remarkably well structured.
2: Yeah, it is
0: as, as, a, as a journey. And then he, you know, he learns this like myth of the goddess of the sea, and and he comes to understand the deeper strains behind the cultural things that he's seeing like the the wife swapping dance was like a very yep, funny was an part of one. part of the <laughs> book you know he he, yeah. he witnesses this this ritual by which husbands and wives go like in public to this like village event where no children are allowed just just the grown-ups and uh, everybody goes home with, with somebody different than their usual partner and at first he's just like wow this is crazy <laughs> he's like imagine if my uncle heard about this and then he realizes that there's actually a deep like survival mentality behind this, which is that this bonds people to each other. And that if like one of those men were to die, that woman and her her children would be supported by the other man. And there's this kind of silent pact that binds the community together. And it's like sealed in this way. And he's kind of, he's touched by it. He he says something like, I think that the people of Greenland are, are a gentler people mm-hmm. than my own. And that was a surprising yeah. conclusion.
2: Yeah, and that's a real moment where he could have just made a very definitive assumption based on what he'd seen that was perhaps not very flattering of the culture. Yeah. But he took time to sort of dig behind it and learn about it. Because he's that's not the first time he's encountered. I don't think the, the situation you just described isn't promiscuity, but there's situations earlier in the book that involve swapping partners and things that are definitely more aligned with sort of promiscuity without that sort of traditional underpinning. So he could have quite easily lumped it in with that, but he yeah, he took time to learn about it. But I think there's a bit shortly after that as well where he's talking about how his host, um, 2a who's put him up, who is either widowed or basically a widower a widow because he doesn't have a partner, how he's left out of that traditional process because he doesn't have a partner to take to the dance. So he can't swap So he doesn't have anyone Mm -hmm. looking out for him and his kids who he can't provide for won't be provided for while he's alive, but also after he dies. And then I think it's after that Mm -hmm. where he says that he's talking about how that lack of the fact that even though they're quite a welcoming, generous human society, the fact that there are limits to that says, he says, I was now convinced that I was living among people no different from any Mm -hmm. other men on earth. So he sees that Mm -hmm. he sees what you just said about how they've got sort of nobler goals and, and nobler sort of aspirations in some areas but then he sees that everyone's got these commonalities as well that maybe aren't as as positive yeah and that's it it's just him revising it on an ongoing basis as well
0: how do you think you would have done with with the food me yeah
2: <laughs> I think at the <laughs> at the start I might have struggled it sounds very well I, I went to Iceland too actually a few years back it was I had a flight back from Boston to London and it was free to take a stopover in Iceland. So I took it. Oh, right, right. And I did some couch surfing. And the host did the traditional thing of when you get to a place, giving you the most gross local foods, or the most like distinctive local foods that are <laughs> potentially gross to an outside palate. And they gave me... Did you have the pickled shark? Yeah, the fermented shark that they bury underground for like several months or something.
1: That was one of the most wild things I've ever put in my mouth. Yeah, I described it. <laughs> I don't
2: it. think I like it. No, it was like sushi mixed with blue cheese is how i remember it which is two things that should never never meet i i I weirdly think you would like it
1: It just for me i was like
2: yeah what
1: (laughs) i also ate a whole lamb's head wow there was a restaurant that literally bakes a lamb's head and then you're supposed to eat the eye Mm -hmm. the cheek the tongue the gum like everything yeah and you get like a certificate almost that you completed the lamb's head challenge wow
2: yeah my bravo my friend grew up in yorkshire and her granddad has stories about how that was just sort of common common fare at the time he was growing up because they had to use Mm. all the meat i really like that they use the whole animal because it sounds like they've got very limited access to food at certain times of year and they are are respectful to it and they sort of make amends to the soul of the animal and it sounded like a very sustainable um, and respectful sort of food culture which is nice to read about but some of the stuff he describes, I struggled to imagine eating. But then at the beginning, he did. And then by the end of it, he was all up for a breakfast of, what, like ptarmigan lungs and raw blubber. So mm-hmm. there must be something to it.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I've liked putting reindeer fat in the coffee. Yeah. I yeah. thought that would be fine. Yeah. That could be in like the new uh, pumpkin spice latte, yeah. the reindeer <laughs> latte. I actually
2: folded <laughs> that page corner because I really want to try it. And I don't think that's something I could yeah. easily get hold of in the UK. It's
0: it a good idea. They're like, look, you've got to have fat so you don't die in the cold. Yeah. So you just eat fat at every opportunity. Yeah. Put it in your coffee. Yeah. Like spice it up.
2: Yeah. And I, I loved it when he was talking about trying to drink a beer and it was completely frozen in the bottle. So they were like trying to drink the slush. And then the <laughs> other guy just smashed it. So the glass fell off, used his pen knife to get rid of all the other glass shavings and then just licked it like a beer popsicle. I really liked, I really liked that part. <laughs> It was a wonderfully humorous book. It's
0: serious and and funny at the same time, but I guess those are kind of the same thing in a way.
2: And the way he writes so well about both, and you never feel bored when he's going into like real granular detail about making a skin coat or like the type of folk, the lyrics to the folk songs, you never feel like he's drifting too deep into anything.
0: No, and he, he does get really taken with process. Yep. Like this is how you skin a dog. yeah. It's hard to write about process in depth without losing people.
2: And that barrage, there's one, there's a chapter, I think, where he skins a dog when there's a dog watching. And then they skin a whale carcass that's washed up on the beach. And then they skin a seal. And then he talks about ice fishing and they catch a shark. And he's telling you about how they cut the shark open, rip out its entrails and feed the entrails to the shark to stop it trying to kill them and it's just like all this information about process first of all but then like situations that are completely unimaginable and yeah it's all just written in like calm ethnologist sort of detail that yeah it's incredible mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's a testament too to like the power of the book to normalize something that seems crazy because it's like if you dropped me in greenland and like made me watch someone skinning a dog i probably you know, what, what's taken me a second to get used to it. But um I I
1: just in, <laughs>
0: in reading the book, like you come to feel completely a part of this world. It feels natural. You understand p- precisely why they are doing that. Yeah, And sure. he, he says that he said, these people have to work really hard to provide for themselves mm-hmm. much harder yeah. than, than we have to work to hunt in Africa. And you, uh, you understand why their culture is the way the way it is, and it no longer feels like quote unquote exotic. And like yeah. the, there's so many things about this book, like travel travel literature in general can be problematic in all sorts of ways. But like because this book, like we mentioned, both cultures to in a to an English language reader, and this is an English language edition, and it, the book was written in French, so I, presumably for a French audience. Yeah, it does such an interesting trick of like putting you in the position of two different quote-unquote alien cultures and then making them both feel like they're almost yours in a way Mm -hmm. by the end, through the process of this book, because he's welcomed. At the end, he's he's welcomed to saying, you belong here.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and that again, you asked about whether humanity is sort of inherently good, like they're willing to completely bring him into their culture, which is another example of that. Yeah, I think one of the elusive goals of travel writing is to sort of immerse you so much in a place that you feel as if you're in it. And the things that you read about make sense within it because it's been described in such detail that you have that connection. And he does that without reference to, like, as I said earlier, my origin culture or anything I'm familiar with. So he draws conclusions. He draws references from one thing that's unfamiliar to another, but still brings you far enough within the fold that, you know, like you say, you can read about a dog being skinned without balking at that. And I was reading that in bed last night with the dog. My dog sat next to me and I was just like, it was was quite horrible, like imagining because it's such a visual description of it. And then, yeah, yeah, I couldn't deal with that. Was on. that was the most jarring part of the book, I think, for me, more than yeah, more than the shark entrails and the sort of violence and all stuff he encounters.
0: Mm. At the very, very end of the book, Kippa Masi decides he must return to Africa to tell the tale to his countrymen to fulfill this role of like the storyteller and and share what he learned. What do you think he learned? What do you think he told the villagers? Because presumably, what you would tell like a village of your own people is different than what you'd write in a book for ultimately for Edwin Frank. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I would love to know what he how he packaged that up and what bits he accentuated and what he yeah, like what lessons he drew from it that he wanted because he talks about wanting to go home and educate as well not just share he wants to sort of contribute to his country's development by educating others so I'm really I would love to know what mm-hmm. lessons he's drawn from it because he He learns so much, like the list of stuff he learns, whether it's the courting rituals or how coats are made or how the jail system works or how to drink a frozen beer or whatever. There's just this massive list of information and lessons that he's got. Yeah, I I don't know the answer, but I'd love to find out because he hasn't. This is the only book he's written, I think.
0: Yeah, I read somewhere that he's working on a memoir about his childhood in Africa. Oh, that's cool. So that would be very interesting. Yeah, really interesting to read, especially cuz those first couple chapters are like we said, really absorbing. Yeah. And it set up that adventure mm-hmm. spirit. How did you feel about the way the book ended because he kind of decides to return and a story like this needs a return. You know, mm-hmm. you, you need to have the the leaving and then the journey and then the return. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty quick. And yeah. we we don't get a scene where his father like holds him in his arms or <laughs> you know, where he goes back and like eats a plate of his own, like familiar food. Did, did it feel satisfying to you? I think it almost kind of put me in the mind of, I have to ask myself what I learned. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I found it very abrupt. Like sometimes when you're reading a book, you look how many pages are left and you're like, mm. that's not enough. <laughs> like, this isn't going to resolve. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And I got that. Yeah, he just sort of decides he's going home after being invited to live there forever. And also expressing a desire to live there forever as well. And then the next the next paragraph he's like, "Oh, I'm going to go home actually, and he's on the yeah. boat. and it ends. so I think it was quite abrupt i don't I don't think that's a, necessarily a negative, but mm-hmm. I agree with what you said that it, I think it would have been really nice to get some closure on his family because he just sort of left them forever when yeah. he was what like twelve years old or something or very young now he ran away
0: yeah. ran away without them knowing, yeah, We're, so yeah, and he
2: went back briefly when he'd had a job for a little while as and that sort of changed his standing within his family, and they couldn't force him to do. The previous obligation with the the sort of snake healer tribe, but you do feel a bit. I felt a bit bad for his family, and it would have been nice to know whether they were interested to hear about what he'd been up to.
0: Yeah, and and how he came to make the decision to return. Yeah, because he had been so invested in getting there, and then once you fulfill this long term goal, one has to ask themselves, well, what what now? Yeah, yeah. and he makes the pretty radical choice to reverse.
2: Yeah. It made me wonder whether something happened between the lines, like whether he got news about a family member or got an opportunity for a, a job or something, and he, that sort of swayed him, something that wouldn't have fit, fitted within the narrative of the book, but would explain how abrupt it was. But yeah,
1: there's no way to know. Out of curiosity, did you take anything from Kobo Masi's work and put it in into your own work when you wrote your book? Or do you see any similarities that you maybe
2: did subconsciously? Yeah, so I actually read this first time January this year. and. The book was finished technically before that, although I've basically rewritten it since. So, of I don't think I actually, I, there's a few, there's definitely common aspects that I identified. So when he's talking about that initial idea and then looking at maps and then gradually like piecing together what it might look like, this is in terms of experiences rather than writing devices. And then that sort of putting yourself out into the world and encountering generosity and conversations and stuff. Even though the journeys are completely different, I saw some parallels, which I found interesting um Mm. i don't know in terms of writing that i could sort of pick out yeah the question of how to end it is a difficult one it's easier when there's like a definitive end point to the bike ride but it's still that question of like how much do you open up and what other things do you resolve about additionally to the physical achievement Mm -hmm. so that was something that was on my mind quite a lot definitely starting from a journal actually when he said that he couldn't write because the ink was frozen in his pen i could relate to Every time we stopped on the bike ride I'd just like jot down some idea or something I'd just seen into a journal so there was that like raw material to refer back to later.
0: Did you take the ride knowing that you would write about it? Was that the impetus?
2: It was yeah, it was my ambition to write a book about it and it took it took a few years to turn that ambition into reality, but it was on my mind before the bike ride to possibly write about it, yeah.
0: I wonder if if he had that thought as well because he was always studying language and reading books whenever he could. But I don't know if he was like, yeah, I'm going to write a bestseller one day.
2: (laughs) One of the questions I had for you guys would, Mm. do you think you would have written a book if it went for the freak accident at the start and how many stories like this don't exist because of some freak accident not happening?
0: Oh yeah. I like that question. I mean, I think all writers are probably born of freak accidents whether it's like being
1: what was yours
0: (laughs) well yeah you have to like fall out of a tree but I think everybody falls out of a tree yeah like in the process of growing up even if you're not from Togo and you don't actually maybe get bitten by a snake or get (laughs) shot up with the antidote to a snake bite that you never got everyone experiences some like break that is formative but I, I yeah I do wonder like what if he hadn't have chosen, if he hadn't have like seized upon this, this quest of getting to Greenland, what would his quest have been? Could it not have been a Greenland book? Could it have been like a book about Thailand? Mm-hmm. And then he got really into going there.
2: Yeah, I think he had the trajectory internally somewhere and the odds are high that he would have written something. It's interesting that we're talking about this book. This book for me is the only understanding I have of Greenland culture Mm. Mm. it'll be interesting to know whether someone from Greenland identifies with what he said and how he presents it because yeah I don't know I don't know that at all
0: yeah and how much of Kipomasi's authentic Greenland culture still exists
2: yeah
0: or whether it's more more like the more Denmark controlled portion
2: yeah yeah that's an interesting point actually because my I feel like I'm quite familiar with Greenland now but it's all just one one testimony that underpins that so
0: mm-hmm. you're a huge nyrb classics reader in general you have favorites in the series other favorites you, you wanted to like shout out or tell us about
2: yeah i've got a couple that come to mind i think the one i enjoyed most was pinocchio have you read the original version of pinocchio oh, i was super
0: excited to do that yeah, yeah
2: it is nuts i won't say anything else but that's so different to what i expected and mm. oh okay like, that's exciting sort of realizing how because I, I subscribed to the New York Review of Books book club in February 2021 or 22, I think, 21, and seeing gradually seeing like how deep and varied the series is has been interesting. But I think Pinocchio mm-hmm. was the one that showed me like just how niche it can go. There's one called Guston in Time, which is about the artist Philip Guston, and it's who I hadn't heard of before I found this book. And it's a series of letters that he wrote to his friend and the letters back. And it's just like a portrait of his life through that. And that one is the one that most embodies the sort of really enjoying a book that you had no idea about existing or any of the things inside it. That was a really good one.
0: Wow. I had not heard of that one. That sounds really great. I do love correspondence books.
2: Yeah. Because yeah, you you mentioned the the Beethoven book. Is that? The what book? I feel like there was a Beethoven book you guys mentioned earlier in the podcast. The Conversations. Oh,
0: Conversations with Beethoven. Yes. That's is that a in the series? Favorite.
2: Or is that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's on my list to check out. But that's fictional conversations. Oh, okay, it's like, cool.
0: yeah, fictional fragments of a disintegrating great mind.
2: Yeah, the last one, there's one called uh, The Open Road by Jack Giorno, I think.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's really, that's just, a, again, I hadn't heard of the, uh, the author before it came in the post. And it's just a really beautiful story about one of my, it's one of my favorite subgenres where a person just goes on a long walk and it's about what happens to them on their walk. But it's just mm. like, really lovely writing, so yeah those three what
0: are other examples of a person going on a long walk
2: a walk in the woods by Bill Bryson is oh okay yeah sure. that's that's the and that's one of the books that got me into sort of travel writing which is fairly stereotypical yeah. but a good one I can't actually think of any other examples but there are a few sure. in my goodreads i <laughs> maybe I'll tweet you on
0: okay free. good 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 yeah well thank you so much for coming on and sharing this book with us I found it really I knew it was going to be interesting but it was like interesting in a whole different way than what I had anticipated
1: yeah
2: which it was great.
0: is huge yeah it's that's what a journey should be,
1: right? Yep,
2: mm-hmm. And, it, for and sure. it,
0: was for, it was for him. And we get that experience reading the book.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. We will
0: mm-hmm. definitely be looking out for your book coming out, hopefully July. Sweet. This summer. Yeah, yes. Words
1: and Far by Chris Lay. And we're back from our flat in Brooklyn. This is said Set. Hello. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think one could say that we went through a journey. We traveled.
0: Yes. Not quite as far as Greenland, but...
1: And not as quite as far as going across all of Canada. I must respect <laughs> Chris for doing that. That sounds intense. <laughs> I just found the language very different from most of the things, if not all the things that we've read. Mm, how so? It's not nearly as flowery, I think, as the lot of things we read, but almost even more descriptive Yes, of everything around the the setting, the emotion, the character... Than most of the things we've read. It was interesting, I think, when we talk about viewing the NYRB classics in a larger context, like Edwin kind of thinks about it as more of all the books speaking together as
0: mm-hmm. well as just
1: the books individually. I feel like it stood out in that way.
0: Yeah. I, he didn't, it doesn't seem like he thought of himself as like a capital W writer, but or even
1: he, necessarily a capital E explorer.
0: No. No.
1: It seemed like one of these things that he had to do. And out of that, he became a great writer he and a great explorer. Like, there, that's nothing yeah. against it. It's just that was besides the point almost.
0: He wasn't following a model yeah, for exactly. what an explorer looked like or what a writer looked like. He was just having an experience and then feeling compelled to share it. So glad he, he did. But he he talks at the end about how he felt an obligation to fulfill his role as a storyteller. That, that That is what the book is. It's a, it's a supreme example of storytelling because it's a great story removed from the book that was created. But it's also a great book that was
1: created. It's an excellent descriptor of it.
0: Well, thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. I think in two weeks, we're finally going to have our Aikenfield episode out for those who have been waiting for it. We had some technical difficulties, which Dylan figured out. Luckily. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily. So look out for that.
1: Yeah, it's coming.